This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Barbara Eastman, who just increased her pledge amount. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 548 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly says, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. And Kirk's Reviews writes, Kirtley employs sharp, concise prose that complements his puckish sense of humor. The author's passionate voice breathes life into this wonderful array of tales. So again, the book is called Save Me Please and Other Stories, and it's available now on Amazon.com. And our guest today is Susan Palwick, author of the novels Flying in Place, The Necessary Beggar, Shelter, and Mending the Moon. The Necessary Beggar was recently reissued by Tor as part of their Tor Essentials line of science fiction classics. Her short fiction appears in magazines such as Asimov's, The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and Tor.com, and she was one of the founders of the New York Review of Science Fiction. And in this interview, we'll be discussing her short story collections The Fate of Mice and All Worlds Are Real. And now here's our interview with Susan Palwick. All right, so we're here with Susan Palwick. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to start off with your first short story collection, The Fate of Mice. So how'd that book come about? Um, That book came about because my story, Gestella, which is... You know, like if if there are still people reading stories in a hundred years, if hmm. anybody remembers anything of mine, that's the thing they'll remember, right? Um, and I think it was I was at some convention. I can't remember if it was a World Con or World Fantasy, which are the only two I ever attend. But somebody from Tachyon, um, I think Bernie Goodman had said, oh, you should have a story collection. And then I talked to Jacob Weissman and Jacob was like, yeah, let's do a story collection. So that's how that came about. But I think it was because Bernie was so enthusiastic about Gastella. Yeah. I mean, the first time I heard your name was when I read Gastella in the Starlight mm-hmm. 3 anthology. And I was just blown mm-hmm. away by it. I mean, I... Uh, have described the story uh, many times over the years to people and and have often said it's my favorite uh, werewolf story that I've ever read. Thank so. you. Thank you. Carrie Vaughn once told me that, which was, you know, you know, talk about being blown away. We were doing a joint signing at a world con and I was next to her and she had a line, you know, five blocks long and I had like three people. And at one point in one of her few pauses, I was sitting there knitting. She turned to me and said, you know, I just want to tell you that I love Gastella and I tell people that it's absolutely foundational to the to the field. And I was you know, floating on air for the rest of the day. Yeah, and I'm sure she's read more werewolf stories than I have. So, uh, so that means uh, something. Probably more than anybody. Yeah. 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 
Um, so that's cool. So then what was the process like of putting the collection together and having it come out and everything? Um, I, you know, I went back through the story, uh, stories I'd published and picked out a bunch and showed them to Jacob and his team. Um, there was one that, um, one of his folks didn't like, which wound up in all worlds are real. That was cucumber gravy. (laughs) Um, and otherwise, I, I, I don't, I, and I think he picked the order of them. I honestly, it was a while back now, and I don't remember very well how that, how that all worked, but I was, I was very, very happy with the final product. I love the cover. I love both of my covers for the collections. Um, and, um, you know, and it, it got some nice notice and that felt really good. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'll, so I'll explain the book came out in 2007, The Fate of Mice, mm-hmm. and it yes. collects stories going back to your, you know, your, your first published, you first started publishing short fiction in 1985. So there's sort of a 20-year span of um, that you had to draw on. Right, right, right. And that, that first story is not in the collection. Um, but, um, but most, and, and some of, actually a lot of my earliest work isn't, I think... What is the earliest, the earliest story in here is either Elephant or Ever After. I'll have to check the page to see. Um, Okay, Elephant was 86, Ever After was 87. Yeah, so those are the, those are the two earliest. Yeah, Ever After was also one of my favorite stories uh, in this book. I thought thank it was you. a tremendous story. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I really, I really like that. And, you know, and Gastella and Ever After both came out of sort of, you know, traumatic moments in my life. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're, they're classic examples of, you know, you take an unpleasant thing and you turn it into art. Um, so, you know, that's always a fun process. Um, Terry Windling, who is one of my favorite writers and editors, said once, you know, she's had a she's had a tough life. And and she said once, you know, whenever anything bad happens to me, I say, I'm a writer. I can use this. <laughs> That's become one of my mottos. Yeah, well, well definitely. And um, I saw in an interview you said, um, I've written stories that began and continued explicitly as responses to gender issues or tropes ever after and Gastella are the right. two best known in that category. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and uh, one of the, one of the sparking moments for Gastella was I had just turned 39 and um, I was in an internet chat with a bunch of people and mentioned this and some guy was like, oh, well, you know, your husband will never find you attractive again, even if he lies and says he does. And I'm like, you know, what, the, <laughs> what in the world? Like, um, and then I, the other part of that was we had just lost a cat, which was the inspiration for going after Bobo. Um, and I, I went to the pound every day to look for him. And on one of those trips, there was a guy surrendering a dog, um, you know, young, healthy dog. And he's like, well, I wanted a hunting dog. This isn't a hunting dog. And the, the cleaning, the shelter staff said, you understand that the dog will probably have to be put down because it's hard to adopt out 
you know, grown animals. And he said, well, I don't, I don't want this dog. And meanwhile, his little boy who was six, seven, eight, somewhere in there was sitting on the ground with his arms around the dog, looking up at passersby and saying, he's a good dog. And I, (laughs) oh, you know, it's just like, And then, you know, they're leaving and the guy says to his son, oh, we have to go buy a birthday present for mommy. And I'm thinking, what was his to do list this morning? You know, kill dog, buy birthday gift for wife, you know, traumatized son. What the, you know, it was just one of those moments. So those two things turned into Gastella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I guess maybe I'll explain um, for listeners. So the premise of the story is that there's a young woman from, I gather, sort of Eastern Europe. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's specified in the story. Um, and she is a, a werewolf. So she sort of, you know, turns from a human into not, not a sort of wolf man kind of, but, uh, into an actual kind of wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and she meets this American professor and they get married. Um, and she ages in dog years. So she ages seven times faster than a normal person. And so when they first meet, she's you know, very young and beautiful. Um, and then he becomes, um, increasingly dissatisfied as she ages much more quickly right. than he does. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, and I, I it, as far as I can tell, that gender dynamic is still at play. I mean, you know, this story is a while ago now. Um, I was, I was 39 when I wrote it. I'm 62 now. Uh you know, and if you've seen the Barbie movie, which we saw last weekend uh, and loved, um, you know that you know that this kind of thing is is still happening. I mean, we you know we fetishize we fetishize youth in women in this country, and women still often get discarded when they're older. So, what was it like emotionally writing that story? Did it just sort of like pour out of you in a hot rage? Yeah, or? yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. It poured out of me in rage and, you know, in a couple of sittings. <laughs> and, and, and ever after kind of did too. I mean, that took a little longer to write, but, um, you know, that was also, that was also sparked by, by anger at, at, you know, at a breakup, actually. I mean, I had been, I had been somebody I cared about a lot had and thought was going, was I was going to marry, um, broke up with me over the phone three weeks before Christmas. Um, and a few weeks after that, the phone rang and I thought it was, I thought it was this person because I was half asleep. Right. And we had a pretty long conversation and then I realized it wasn't the person and it was, you know, like a creep pretending to playing along with me pretending to be, and I hung up really quickly, but it was a lesson in, how we can fool ourselves when we want something to be true. So, so wait, so some stranger called you. Yeah. And just randomly. It, well, it was a porno call basically. Right. But, (laughs) but he didn't start out that way. I mean, it started out a lot more civilized and I thought it was, and I said, Oh, so-and-so. And And he's like, yeah, how are you doing? I mean, you know, he was, he was following my lead. I mean, uh-huh. I had made the mistake of, you know, of saying the name um, and it got sort of, you know, increasingly weird over five or 10 minutes. And finally, I'm like, oh, you're not so and so and hung up. 
And a week later, the phone rang, and it was the same creep saying, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm like, no, you're not. And I'm up again. <laughs> so, so how did that... <laughs> How did that inspire ever? Like, how did you get from that experience to to ever after? Um, you know, and it was also the experience of the breakup, which was this kind of, you know, I thought it was my fairy tale, and then it turned out to be something very different. Um, and so, you know, so it was. Oh, you think X is happening. And really, why is happening? Something much less pleasant is happening, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I apologize to listen. I'm going to spoil Ever After. There's just no way to talk <laughs> about it. So if, you, if you're, you know, adamantly opposed to spoilers, you know, stop listening now. Block your ears. Block your ears. <laughs> um, but but so so Ever After the premise basically, it's like the fairy godmother from Cinderella is a vampire who recruits woman after woman to be kind of the next Cinderella and she turns them into vampires over the course of the of sort of grooming them to you know to meet the prince and go to the ball and stuff like that mm-hmm. um is that is that an accurate synopsis yeah. of the story yeah 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 and there you know and there comes the moment when she has to reveal to the Cinderella character or the Cinderella character realizes what's been happening i mean and the fairy godmother is presented as you know, a compassionate character in a way, right? Like she's not completely a villain. I don't, I don't like straight up villains. I, um, I find them pretty boring for the most part. When I taught writing, which I did for many years, um, I used to tell my students, I would still, still tell my students this look very few people, wake up in the morning intending to be evil so your your villains need your villains need relatable motivations i mean your your villains need to have reasons why they think they're doing the right thing and being the good folks um and that will make them much more complicated and much more interesting you know if we can understand their point of view um i you know i don't like fiction that allows us to take sides really easily. So so the fairy godmother in the story, what do you think is her, like, what is the sympathetic read on, on what she's doing? It, you know, the sympathetic read is, from her point of view, she's empowering this young woman, right? Um, you know, you're going to, let me flip to the the story. Hang on here. Why oh, can't I find it? Hello? Oh, hang on. Okay, I've got to go to the table of contents. I don't remember where it is. Oh, it's later in the book. That's why. Um, um, and this and the story's written from the godmother's point of view, right? And you know, I you know, and she says. You'll never be ugly. You'll always be as beautiful as you are now, as beautiful as I am. Um, um, and then she says, we shelter our young as the mortal mothers shelter theirs. Those human women who have necessity are as predatory as we and as dependent on the invitation to feed. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a tragic story, but she's also, 
she, you know, she's granting immortality, which is one of the classic vampire tropes. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because the story in a couple of places, it draws connections between vampirism ends and humanity. I mean, so at one point, the, the fairy godmother says, living women feed off their men as we do, and they require mm-hmm. permission to enter houses and go to dances as we do, and they depend right. on spells of seeming. Right, and right, a, right. Oh, you went, go ahead. Well, just that, with the, and that was one of the big sparks for that story. I mean, when I realized that Cinderella and the vampire story line up very, very neatly <laughs> because of because of those three factors, right? Yeah. And, and then one of the things I loved about the story is there's this priest character, you know, sort of mm-hmm. at one point, the this priest gets called in to perform an exorcism or something. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's almost. It turns out he's like like a vampire super fan almost, and is actually going to help um, the Cinderella character, right? Um, but but he says this is and this is the the other vampire parallel I wanted to mention. He says the church cannot get sons the normal way, so it takes other people's and leaves the best young men to breed more souls. You and I are not, you see, so very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess sorry, mm-hmm. he's speaking. Sorry, he's speaking to the godmother character at that in that part. Right. The right. Vampire. Right. Right, exactly. Um, you know, and then there's the whole bit with blood as communion wine. <laughs> there, there's, um, you know, there's that that parallel too. So yeah, and he, I mean, he is a he is a sympathetic character, and he um, because you know someone he loves has been turned, and he wouldn't want that person to be hurt. So he, you know, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to hurt um, the characters in the story. I don't know if you've um, if you've read Neil Gaiman's story Snow Glass Apples, which is also it's sort of um, Snow White as a vampire. I, I haven't. Uh, I was wondering if your story had maybe because because the um, it's a Neil Gaiman story. He wrote it um, mm-hmm. maybe ten I think ten years after this came out. So I was uh-huh. I was wondering if he if he saw that and was like, oh, fairy tale vampires, you know, like fairy tales plus vampires is a very fruitful uh, sort of uh, it's it's a it, it's a thing i mean <laughs> i suspect other people have done it too um i mean it you know there's a there's a lot there that lends itself so um yeah yeah um and so uh, so so what sort of response did you get to to gastella and to ever after like did you get reviews or you said Gastella made a really big splash, I guess you said, right? Yeah, it did. I mean, it got, you know, it got picked up for a bunch of years best. Also, it, it, you know, was top ranking for the Sturgeon Award. Um, and, and people are either this story ripped my heart out and I love you or this story ripped my heart out and I hate you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I had, I had somebody on, on Twitter say, you know, how dare you do this to me? I hate you. You know, you're a horrible, horrible person, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I, I, I responded. I think we wound up having a conversation on Facebook and that reader kind of calmed down a little and, and said, because another thing I always told my writing students was, okay, look, if you have a really strong reaction to a story, that means it was a good story. Even if you didn't enjoy the reaction, because it was well written enough to elicit feeling, right? Um, 
So we, like, I wound up having that conversation with this particular reader who kind of grudgingly admitted that, okay, I wasn't a bad writer. She had just had a really strong reaction to the story. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I this uh, this past week I read the story to my wife, and you know, I had read it twenty years ago, so I knew uh-huh. the, the plot, but I could not make uh-huh. it to the end of the story without just completely losing it. You know, I mean, I had a really uh-huh. hard time just finishing without getting you know because I was so choked up. Right. Reading it, yeah. it's just like that yeah. that powerful of a story. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I still, you know, I mean, it still affects me the same way, and I think affects a lot of other people the same way. And as I said, if anybody's reading anything of mine after I die, it'll be that probably. Uh-huh. So, hmm. um, so uh, in one of these interviews, I read a bunch of interviews with you, and in one of them, mm-hmm. you say about your early career, you say, if I hadn't met Ellen Kushner, who introduced me to David Hartwell, who right. introduced me to Ellen Datlow and the Nielsen Haydens and too many other people to name, I wouldn't have a career. So could you sort of walk us through that? What was that like uh, meeting? All so it was amazing. Um, I, I had been um, an English and creative writing major at Princeton where the creative writing workshops, everybody was producing sort of, you know, contemporary literary fiction, right? And I <laughs> I was not. And um, my instructors, you know, were very kind but baffled and kind of scratching their heads and finally said, okay, look, find some other place to get feedback on this stuff and write normal stories for us. Hmm. (laughs) And so I was a member of the Princeton Science Fiction Society. um, And so we started up an on-campus writing workshop and invited, because we were so close to New York, well, we were between New York and Philadelphia, and there are a lot of professionals in both places. So we invited people to come talk to us, you know, to come be, you know, guests, guest speakers and, Ellen Kushner was one of them. I think that was after I graduated, actually. But I, you know, was going back down for the workshops, and she, um, she and I hit it off. And she said, "Oh, you should meet my friend David Hartwell." And I met David Hartwell, who said, "Oh, you," because I'd studied poetry a lot. And he said, "Oh, you should." Um, and I think I published poetry and amazing at that point too but he said um oh you should join the little magazine which was the poetry magazine that he was running at that point and then which you know the meetings for which met in ship delaney's living room so ellen was also indirectly responsible for my meeting ship um and then in 80 that was 85 because it was right before i went to clarion west in seattle which was in 1985. Um, and then in 1988, the little magazine morphed into the New York Review of Science Fiction, um, which was David and Chip and the Nielsen Haydens and Tom Weber, who became Soren DeSelby and me. And over the years, various other people, um, Gordon Van Gelder and yeah, I mean, too many others to name. So yeah. yeah. You know, I used to volunteer at the New York Review of Science Fiction, so I spent a lot of time at David Hartwell's house. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And stuff like that. Oh, and Catherine. Yeah, Catherine. Catherine. How could I forget Catherine? Sure. So, Catherine Kramer. Um, when when were you doing that? Uh, it would have been around 2004 that I was doing that. Okay. Okay. So, well after I had moved to Reno and was, was no longer an active member of NIRSA. 
Yeah. But it was it was just sort of interesting for me to see that you were involved in in founding it. So I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's cool. You know, um, yeah. I never. What was that like? The uh, those initial conversations, or how did the what was the initial uh, couple meetings like, or whatever? For Nirsif? Yeah. Um, well, you know, David felt very strongly that there was that the field needed better reviewing, um, and that instead of people saying, oh, I hated this book, people needed to say, this is an interesting and worthy book and say why, right? I mean, that there needed to be more sort of strengths-based reviewing out there. So that was what we set out to do, uh, you know, and I think we did we did a good job. Uh, it was fun. Yeah. Um, and so then you became an English professor? I did. So what was that like? Um, So I spent 20 years as an English professor, um, and it started out great. I mean, it was an ideal job. I had a 2-2 teaching load, which never happens in the academy anymore. Um, That's two courses a semester. It's usually four. Sometimes it's five. Um, They tenured me for writing science fiction and fantasy, which, you know, when when I was tenured in 2003 was still pretty unusual. It's more usual now, at least a little more usual. Um, you know, and I, I and I was in a really nice department. I mean, I was not in a department where people were stabbing each other in the back for the most part. Um, but I and I had some wonderful students, you know, terrific students. Um, but as the years went by, I became disenchanted with it. Um, I burned out on teaching largely, you know, because, and and students would come to me sometimes and say, you know, I want to be you when I grow up. I want to be an English professor. I want to teach writing. And I'd always sit them down and say, okay, English professors are people who love language and love good writing. And if you are teaching writing, you are going to be plowing through an immense amount of really bad writing. And you're going to be helping the the writers make it better, but it may still not be good. (laughs) And just think about whether you want to do that, you know, because in a stack of 20 manuscripts, there would be one or two that were great and, you know, and a bunch that were okay. And then some that were just, you know, really, really challenging and challenged. Um, And it got to the point where if I was looking at a stack of student manuscripts, I could feel a force field like pushing me away from the papers. Um, And at that point, I was like, "Okay, I've got to I've got to do something else. So I, you know, I switched careers. And so you switched to being a. Well, so you'd been volunteer, volunteering at a hospital for a long time. So, yeah. Okay. So this is a bit of a long story. I had been in 98, I went through a very unexpected religious conversion and wound up being an Episcopalian, which shows up in some of my stories. Um, and I, as part of that, I wound up volunteering in a local emergency room as a as a late chaplain, basically. Um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was my favorite four hours of the week. Um, I mean, part of the teaching burnout was that I realized that the stories I was hearing from my patients, for the most part, I found more compelling than the stories I was reading from my students, right? Um, so I, you know, and I did that for 
10 plus years. And when I was looking at changing careers, because to be fair to myself and my students in the department, I'm like, you know, I need to get out of here. Like, I'm not I'm not doing anybody any good right now. Um, I thought, well, I want to go into healthcare, but nobody's going to hire me as a chaplain because I don't have you know, certain credentials. So I, oh, but social work, there's a school of social work at UNR. So I retired from the English department in 2017, got my MSW. And then the first job that popped up was an entry level chaplain job at a local hospital at our trauma center, actually not the one where I'd been volunteering. I applied for that, got that, was there for almost two years before through the height of COVID. Okay. Um, so that was pretty intense. And then after COVID, they laid off 166 people, including three of the four chaplains. So I and two other people found ourselves on the street. Um, I was then a hospice chaplain for a year and a half. Um, and then I, I, I wasn't, that work didn't appeal to me as much. So I swiveled back to social work and I'm now working as a social worker in a dialysis clinic. Wow, yeah, that's quite a quite a journey. <laughs> um, it's quite a journey, yeah. And, and so in this in the second collection, it's called All Worlds Are Real. There's a story mm -hmm. called Remote Presence, which about yes. a hospital chaplain and a ghost in, in a hospital yeah. that he meets in a hospital. And I would imagine that's is that pretty much autobiographical or are there some no, no. Um, no. I mean I I wrote it I wrote it before I had become a professional chaplain. I wrote it when I was still a volunteer. So there's some stuff I got wrong. You know, if I were writing it now, I, I, I would fix that. But um, I mean, it's autobiographical to the extent that those rooms and smells and, you know, and situations were all things I had, had encountered. I mean, not the ghost, but, um, you know, patients with certain conditions, you know, the people in the waiting room, throwing up into barf bags, you know, the, the people who show up with gangrene. So everybody on, you know, all the staff have the Vicks vapor rub under their noses because it's, you know, if you've ever smelled gangrene, it's, it's unmistakable and pretty unpleasant. Um, and, you know, and also the, the tension between, doing the best for patients and meeting regulatory requirements, right? Um, healthcare is the most heavily regulated industry in the country. Um, so those, you know, and, and the hospital, the story is undergoing a joint commission inspection. Um, and, and those get people, you know, very, very on edge. So, um, you know, all of that was material I drew from. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, that was one thing I really liked about the stories in these collections is how much you draw clearly on a, you know, a, a deep knowledge of, you know, people in difficult situations and the thank you, you know, just just you know, yeah, just the ways that people can be be struggling, which you write about with so much uh, empathy. Um, and so in addition, so in addition to the, the hospital work that you did, um, you also, mm -hmm. I came across this interview, um, that was on Tangent Online, um, from uh -huh. 20, 2013, where you talk a lot about your sort of upbringing and some of the, you know, some of the family dysfunction that you, um, experienced growing up. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Putting the fun in dysfunction. Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, without dwelling on it too much, I mean, uh, there's alcoholism and <laughs> mental illness and, and stuff like that <laughs> that I could definitely <laughs> see, you know, having read, um, you know, stories like Recoveries. Uh, right. Like, oh, I could sure. definitely see the, how that had uh, influenced that story. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the thing there was, um, so my mom was alcoholic, but got into recovery when I was like three and a half. And when I was about eight, she told, she told me about this cause she, you know, she went off to an AA meeting every Thursday night. And, um, for a long time, she didn't tell me what that was, although I had figured it out because she talked to her friends on the phone, right? And when I was about eight, she said, would you like to come to a meeting with me uh, to see what it's like? And I'm like, sure. And I went and I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. You know, they were open meetings and it was all of these people telling these stories. And some of them were, you know, some of them were funny and some of them were sad, but they were all true and they all had happy endings. Okay. I mean, they were all about people overcoming really difficult things to get to the point where they could stand in front of a group of other people and say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober X amount of time. Right. Um, and, you know, and to me that was, you know, that was pretty wonderful. And so I was just enthralled by this uh, and, you know, remained and remain a big fan of 12-step groups. I mean, some of which helped me when I was, my father and stepmother were also alcoholic. They're all dead now. So, you know, there's no shame in saying any of this. Um, and so Alateen helped me a lot, you know, when I was in high school and after college for a while, I went to Al-Anon and, you know, so I have an abiding fine fondness for those groups. But at some point I realized that, alien abductees and AA had the same initials. And I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> what can we do with that? <laughs> so that's where that story came from. Yeah. So, so the, the plot of the story, there's these two women who have grown up together and it jumps, the story jumps back and forth between the, the present and the past. And in the present, one of them mm -hmm. is, is an alcoholic and is struggling with that. And the friend is trying to support her. And we know pretty early on that there's something odd about the narrator, who's the, the friend, mm -hmm. but we don't in initially know exactly what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I loved the story. I, I thought it was Thank so, you. I thought it was so great. I guess, um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say or could say about, do you, do you remember the moment you, I guess it, it was that thing that noticing the AA <laughs> initials yeah. that was sort of, it all, did it all kind of come out of sort of come to you at that well, point or did you have to sort of build yeah, it over time? I mean, most, I, I struggled to tell that story because I, the point of view was really tricky and the voice was really tricky. And I started that story. I mean, I have like five or six different versions of that story and, you know, from, from one point of view, from the other point of view, from, <laughs> You know, from first person, from third person, of course, it ultimately wound up in second, which I also used for Gastella. You know, that's kind of my nuclear option when, <laughs> when a story isn't working any other way. I'm like, okay, let's try second voice um, or, or second person. Um, so, you know, part of it was the initials. And then somewhat as with Ever After, there are, there are, other, there are other parallels, right? I mean, there's lost memory in both, both cases, um, 
you know, notably lost time is, you know, is a big issue for, for people with alcoholism, you know, and is, and is also something that, that alien abductees talk about. And then there's this, you know, sort of semi-closed society of the other people who get it, <laughs> right? You know, either your AA meeting or your alien ab- abduction support group. So. <laughs> and then what kind of res- – did you get a good response to that story or did you hear from alien um, abductees or anything uh, like that? <laughs> I, I didn't that I'm aware of. Um, I mean, a lot of people really liked it. Some people d- – because the, the narrator – I mean, as the story goes along, like we think she has an eating disorder, right? And it turns out she doesn't. It turns out something very, very different is going on. But there were people who didn't get that and thought that I was, um, you know, that I was being unkind or unfair to people with eating disorders. So, um, you know, that was that was a little disappointing to me as a writer, but there were other people who did get it. So, um, and there was one, at least one reader who got it, but said, well, no, that can't be what she meant. So it must be dissing eating disorders. Right. I'm like, uh, I'm like ah, <laughs> you know, but we, we have no control over what people make of our work. So, but a lot, you know, a lot of people enjoyed it and, you know, and thought it was clever and enjoyed the characters. So. Yeah, well, I loved it, and I did not uh, have that <laughs> interpretation at all. So, uh, okay. Um, but but so talk about um, putting together the second collection again. It's called "All Worlds Are Real." So, what was what was the process like of assembling that one? <laughs> so the process there, um, I so I've always been a very slow writer. Okay. And at this point, I'm actually, I'm a deliberately slow writer when I'm writing at all, because that way my ideas don't peter out on me. I mean, except for the few occasions when a story has come to me in a blinding flash, like Costella, um, a lot of my stuff takes years and years and years and years, right? I mean, there are stories in All Worlds Are Real that date back to 1988, and the collection um, came out in, in 2019, um, and, and, you know, and the stories had been published long after. 1988. So, you know, I had all these stories. I was feeling pretty despondent about my career, um, which, you know, I dip in and out of thinking, you know, I'll never sell anything again. I'll never write anything again. No one will ever read me, you know, blah, 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 blah. Most writers go through this. Um, And that I've never been one of those people who could knock out a novel a year, right? and I was talking to a friend who's an artist who was dissing his own work and saying he wanted nothing to do with it. And he actually had a piece in a museum and he had gone to the museum to like get this piece back so he could destroy it because he didn't want anybody to look at it. And I was furious at him. <laughs> I was so angry. And after a day or two, I realized that my anger at him was actually my anger at myself for being a wuss about trying to get my stuff out there. Right. So then I'm like, okay, I've got to try to, I've got to try to sell a second collection. Um, my, you know, my, my agent at the time was, was Kay McCauley who very, very sadly has since died. Um, 
and she had she had sort of gently said that she wasn't able to sell the thing because nobody was was buying collections and I've never been someone who makes a lot of money either. Um, I had tried it at Tachyon and they were like, no. Um, and then, but then Jacob said, well, you know, let me introduce you to Patrick Swenson at Fairwood press because he does print on demand, which is a much more economically viable model for people who aren't New York times bestsellers. Right. Um, and, you know, and that turned into a go. Um, and I had a wonderful time with Patrick putting the book together. Um, and then, you know, the book got got nominated for a Philip K. Dick Award. So, you know, that was pretty fabulous. So I'm really glad that it, that it happened. I mean, the way you tell it in the book is that Joe Walton kind of like marched you up to Patrick Swenson and like insisted that you... Oh, Joe. Okay. Okay. Right. I had forgotten that part. Thank you for reminding me. No, Joe, Joe Walton, who sort of has specialized in giving me kicks in the rear when I need them, um, marched me up to Jacob because Jacob had had the manuscript for a while at that point. And I mean, a long time, and I was too scared to query about it. And she marched me up to him to ask what was going on. And, and I think that's when he introduced me to Patrick, Patrick Swanson. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, yeah, Joe Walton has been a real big, uh, I mean, she wrote it, the introduction for this book. It seems like she's been a she did. booster for your uh, career. Yes. Yes. And I'm very grateful. Um, except she says somewhere, she says, you know, like, why aren't you, she, uh, uh, every time you say, every time she sees me, she demands, "Why aren't you more famous? Why don't your books sell better?" She gets quite cross about it. it, it yes, and um, <laughs> my answer is always, "I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, if I knew that, I'd fix it, right? I mean, part of it is because I'm not a fast writer. Um, I, I, um, a lot of my stuff is kind of uncomfortable to read." You know, I mean, it's about pretty heavy subjects, right? It's not, it's not light, fluffy, fun stuff. I mean, not that it has would have to be. I mean, plenty of people do not fluffy, fun stuff, and they're and they're perfectly, you know, successful and popular and famous and and, and all of that. Um, and I, I'm very bad at at PR. I mean, you know, I hate self publicizing. I don't do it well. I try not to do it at all. I mean, I have this utopian belief that the work should be able to speak for itself and that in fact if there's a good story out in the world it shouldn't matter who wrote it you know because what matters is the relationship between the reader and the text um, which is a lovely idea but doesn't work in the real world because you've got to get your stuff out there somehow which means that you know you need a certain amount of self-promotion um, and people have suggested that I self-publish <laughs> like, mm. no, it would die on the vine. <laughs> you know, I would never be able to get enough copies out there. Well, well, yeah. I mean, just, you know, as I, obviously I read and review a lot of books and interview a lot of authors uh -huh. and, and there is not, I would say much of a correlation between what I think is good and what is popular. I mean, you know, like so many, especially if you're talking about short stories and short story collections. I mean, even the most amazing, the amazing of them, almost never gets any real traction in the marketplace. 
Well, right, which is why publishers don't buy them, right? Because they don't sell. Uh, and that's when, I mean, when I was initially trying to market All Worlds Are Real, I mean, you know, a few years before this conversation with my artist friend, um, everybody was like, short story collections don't sell, short story collections don't sell, short story collections don't sell. I mean, there's no, I had been publishing with Tor at that point. I had, you know, four novels with Tor. Um, and, you know, but they weren't going to look at a story collection. Tachyon, which had done my first one, didn't want to do this one. I mean, presumably because the first one hadn't, hadn't made enough money. Um, I'm not sure it made any money at that point. Um, and, you know, and then Patrick could afford to do it because he's print on demand, but I didn't get, you know, I didn't get an advance. Um, and my, my attitude towards that has always been, I would rather not get an advance and increase the chances of earning out. Cause for my novels, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I got advances and the only one that earned out was flying in place because it was a tiny advance and, and that book did unexpectedly well, um, you know, and the others were, you know, were well reviewed and well received critically, but didn't make any money. So, you know, after that, it's much harder for a publisher to want to touch you because, you know, it's a business. They have to keep their lights on. I get it. Yeah. I mean, it, it really seems in most, in most cases, if someone becomes a big bestseller or something, it really only happens because like they have one book that, you know, just, just for whatever reason is spectacularly successful. And then that builds them enough of an audience that they can just have the freedom to write whatever they want after that. Or they just kind of write the same book over and over every year, and people who like that kind of book gradually find them and know that they're going to. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that's always true. I mean, if you look at people like John Scalzi or Joe Walton, um, they do very well with a lot of different kinds of material, but they're writing a book a year, <laughs> and not everybody can do that. Yeah, that definitely helps for sure. <laughs> um. But yeah, but it, it, yeah, but so I just, but I just love short stories so much and I like sort of, you know, offbeat short stories a lot. So uh, I always wish that more people would uh, read single author short story collections and, and read some of these, these things like Gastella and Ever After and Recoveries. I mean, you're really well, missing out people if you're not reading this stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think so, but I'm biased. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad you think so too. Um, yeah, it, it's... It's 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 a frustration, um, but you know, short stories seem to be a niche market, and and to some extent, I understand that. I mean, I never used to be someone who read series, um, and lately, I have started reading series. Um, it took me after I left the university. It took me two years to be able to read for pleasure again, um, <laughs> which was one of the reasons I left, um, and I. And 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 I and and at that point I kind of discovered the pleasures of comfort fiction. I mean, I was doing you know I was doing emotionally difficult work in healthcare environments, um, and I discovered the comfort of just picking up a book and then picking up the next book and picking up the next book and knowing that the world and the characters were going to be the same. Um, and especially during the pandemic, right when you know everything was at risk and everything was questionable and everything felt dangerous, you know, the, the safety of that was a very powerful draw. 
Um, and I don't think, <laughs> I mean, I don't think the world's getting any safer. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that's why, that's why people prefer novels and long series because they can sink into that world and become part of the, that world and know that that world's, you know, continuing in the next book or the next five or 10 books. Um, and, you know, and they can stay there yeah. and don't have to completely readjust their perceptions and their and their understanding understandings yeah. of things. Well, that that kind of reminds me of this sort of amazing story you told in this uh, tangent online interview I mentioned, where as a kid you had this sort of cadre of imaginary friends. Uh-huh. Um, could you talk about like the about the math teacher and the um, uh, guidance? Oh yes, I love the story, and I know that some of a lot of my responses have gone over your three minute limit, and and this one <laughs> will too. So so please bear with me. Um, so when I was in third grade, um, I was a very dreamy, weird, imaginative kid. I have since, when I was 61, I was actually diagnosed with mild Asperger's. Um, but, you know, back in the 1960s, nobody knew that. So they just thought I was weird. Um, and I had a very, very involved imaginary world, which involved I mean, the three main components were Star Trek Narnia and and Elsa the Lioness from Born Free, okay, who was who was mating with Aslan from Narnia and having having lion cubs who were running around. And I also had some of my own characters. I mean, there were three princes who were fighting of control for a palace and um, flew around with little jetpacks attached to their heels. And so, you know, this was all very complicated and there were stories and blah 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 and I hated math math scared me math still scares me um, and I wasn't learning to multiply um, and my my math teacher would get frustrated with me and saying you aren't paying attention go sit in the back of the room at the table with you know basically it was the table with the you know the kids who weren't performing up to par um, so I'd go sit there um, and then at some point she started saying she was getting really frustrated with me and I was doing very well in all my other classes. Um, and she got really frustrated with me and said, okay, I want you to go tell your teachers that you haven't been paying attention in math class. I want you to go tell your other teachers you haven't been paying attention in math class. And, you know, I may have been a weird kid, but I wasn't stupid. I wasn't going to do that. So I would the classrooms were joined by by bathrooms, which was kind of a weird setup. But I would hide in the bathroom until classes changed, and then I'd go on to my next class, right? So so I'm flunking math. Nobody can figure out what to do. My parents, who were, you know, for all their problems, were great advocates for me. Um, and my mother at that point was a teacher. But, the, you know, nobody could figure out what was going on. Um, there was actually talk of having me change schools. Um, and then finally, somebody sent me to the guidance counselor who he was this very tall, skinny man who looked like who looked like David Frost. If you know who that is, um, he was kind of he, he was looked kind of like a stork to me. And, you know, he, he was very kind. And he sat me down and said, and no one else had asked this question, not the math teacher, not my parents who loved me and were worried, right? He said, Susan, when you're not paying attention in math class, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm imagining. 
He said, what are you imagining? <laughs> and I told him the story about, you know, Elsa and Eslon and the Cubs and the three three princes with their jetpacks and Spock and the crew of the Enterprise flying around. Hmm. And, and um, he said, wow, you know, that's really interesting. And he, he dug out this old manual typewriter from somewhere or other and perched on a stool and said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to tell me that story and I'm going to type it up and then you're going to draw pictures to illustrate it. And I thought that sounded cool. So I told the story again and he typed it up. We had a page or two um, and he gave it to me and I drew pictures. And then he smiled at me and said, now, I want you to take this to all of your teachers and tell them this is what you're doing when you're not paying attention in math class. <laughs> you know, and most of my teachers were like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, I mean, they knew I was smart and imagined them. And the math teacher started spending extra time with me after school. She brought me little presents <laughs> and, and my mother sat down with me with a bowl of M&Ms and flashcards and, you know, got me to memorize my times tables. And I still can't look at an M&M without you know, <laughs> reciting the times table. Um, so, you know, it was a wonderful little story about somebody who was empathic and understood kids and was willing to listen. Years later, many years later, in 1992, my mother had a stroke, um, a mild stroke, fortunately. And I was, you know, I had gone to see her in the hospital. Um, and a friend of hers was visiting. And this was someone she knew from when she had worked in the school system in our town. Um, and this woman was a psychologist and named Leah. And somehow this story came up. I told Leah the story and Leah said, Susan, where did you go to school? And I said, Quarles. And she said, oh, I know who that was. That was Tony Ruvalo. He's my friend. You should call him and tell him that story. He would love to hear that story. And I was like, oh, come on. You know, it was years ago. He won't remember. Well, I wound up calling the guy and he remembered who I was immediately. <laughs> and he said, you know, that math teacher was a total bitch. And I couldn't tell you that when you were in third grade. Um, and I, she, she, he said she had no business working with children. And he was delighted to learn that I had become a writer. <laughs> I, I sent him a copy of Flying in Place, which, which had just come out, you know, and it was, it was a very happy story. But that's, you know, that's a story about, about the power of storytelling and about the power of people who are willing to work outside the box and ask so what's really going on here yeah no i just love that story and it just makes you think whenever there's a kid who's not paying attention definitely ask why and what they're thinking about instead because you might have the next right. susan powick on your hands without even knowing it <laughs> right or or someone even better you know? <laughs> um, i mean a lot of the brightest people i know never finished high school because they were bored yeah yeah definitely I mean, you um, know, and the educational system hasn't gotten any better since I was in third grade. So, yeah, that was that was sort of my experience a lot of the time as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I did want to ask you uh, before we run out of time. I mean, you mentioned that you you know became Episcopalian and worked as a lay preacher and stuff like that. Uh -huh. And there was a quote you have here. You say. Um, 
My definition of scripture with a small s is any story that helps create and maintain community. That includes all the various holy scriptures, but it also certainly includes Buffy, Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, and so forth. Any beloved story that imparts a sense of shared experience and values. So, I liked that. Right. Exactly. Um, And, you know, and my famous story about that, which, you know, if we have a few more minutes, this is another one that probably runs over over three. But... um, and this story has gotten a tremendous response from from students, especially. Um, and I've actually used it when I've preached, and it gets you know good good reactions there too. So I was a Star Trek fan, as I said. And in middle school, um, I I was in an uneasily integrated school where, according to the adults, okay, the white kids were going to college and the black kids weren't. Um, and most of the white kids were Jewish. Um, and I was white and not Jewish. I wasn't anything at that point. And my best friend was black and, you know, smarter than anyone else in the school. Um, and, you know, and I was getting, I was getting bullied like every day by everybody. <laughs> you know, I would have bullied me if I, I mean, I practically had a neon sign on my head saying, bully me. I was, you know, I was getting, I was a teacher's pet and I wore weird clothes and I looked funny and all that. So, um, and my friend Nadia was the person who stood up to the billies and said, stop that, leave her alone. And they did, which I thought was a miracle. And it turned out she was a Star Trek fan too. So we talked about Star Trek on the phone for hours every night. And in 1973, we went to the second Star Trek convention in New York City because my father and stepmother lived there and we could stay with them and take the bus down to the hotel. So it was perfect. And one of the people who spoke there was Nichelle Nichols, who, as you probably know, had been planning at one point to leave Star Trek because she was so bored with only saying all hailing frequencies open, Captain. (laughs) And Martin Luther King Jr., who was a fan, this cannot have been long before he died, called her and said, you have to stay on the show. Your people need role models. So she did. Um, And she spoke at the convention and she looked out over us. And if you've seen Galaxy Quest, it was just like that. Okay. I love that movie. You know, it was the sea of pimples and fake Spock ears and, and all the rest of it, you know, all these, all these geeky adolescents. And she looked out over this crowd and said, people make fun of you because you love Star Trek. They think Star Trek is only about bad acting and cheesy special effects. And you know that Star Trek is about more than that. You know that Star Trek is about love and peace and justice. And that's why it's your job to go out and save the world. (laughs) Okay. And it was like being in a tent revival. I mean, we were all in (laughs) tears. That was the year I decided to become a writer. my friend Nadia decided to become a NASA scientist and, you know, didn't quite do that, but got a master's in biomechanics and a PhD in physical anthropology and wound up working for um, companies that manufacture artificial joints. Okay. And like writing some of the FDA stuff around that. So, you know, had a big impact on a lot of people. Um, So it was, it was a pivotal moment. Many years later, I told this story as part of a conference paper on science fiction as conversion narrative. And 
one of the people in the audience, um, this was at the the uh, Popular Culture Association, and one of the people in the audience raised her hand after the talk and said, and it turned out she was the president of the PCA's science fiction and fantasy area, which was huge. And she said, I'm a little older than Susan was, but I was at that same Star Trek convention in 1973, and I heard that same talk by Nichelle Nichols, and here we both are. (laughs) (laughs) So I've always wanted to somehow send out email to everyone who was in that ballroom and say, how did that speech change your life? (laughs) Because it did that for at least three of us. Yeah, that's really amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was great. I guess maybe maybe the last thing I'll ask you about is, so I was looking over some of your publications that you had on um, New York Review of Science Fiction, mm-hmm. and The Last Unicorn showed up more than once. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm a big Last Unicorn fan. I, you know, I mean, I read the book as a kid, but um, you know, I just got married in May, and uh, my wife oh, and I congratulations. Danced, danced to, oh, thank you, um, danced to the song from The Last Unicorn for our you know, first dance at our wedding. So, yeah. You know, it's it's a definite favorite of mine. So, so, but I was just wondering if if, if you could talk about kind of what is what was your last unicorn uh, experience? My last unicorn experience. So I um I read it when I was young, you know, ten, twelve, something like that, um, and 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 really liked it, and reread it a bunch of times, and every time I reread it, I found more. It's one of those books that's kind of inexhaustible. I mean, The Lord of the Rings is like that, too. Um, I've now taught The Lord of the Rings a number of times, and every time you go back to it, there's more that you didn't didn't see the first time. Um, and the thing, I, the thing I loved about that book, even as a kid and appreciated even more as an adult, was that the happy ending was very qualified. I mean, there was a happy ending, but there was also real loss and sacrifice. So, you know, so in that sense, it was a very realistic story about a unicorn. Um, And there was a tremendous amount of of feeling in it. Um, And, you know, and, and just a lot of a lot of wisdom and people struggling with feelings and, you know, and people trying to trying to make sense of who they are and how they fit into the world. I mean, you know, that's, that's true of the unicorn in both of her guises. It's true of Schmendrick. It's true of Molly grew to some extent. So. So when you wrote about it for, for Indursif, what kind of, uh, well, observations did you make or what was the thrust um, of this? And the Nearsif actually, the Nearsif essay actually started out as a as a paper for a college class um i i took this course toward called you know what was it it was it was a science and technology course that talked about science fiction and the professor um had a very I, I had talked to all my science fiction friends into taking the course and he had a very different definition of technology than, than we did. I mean, his definition of technology started with the industrial revolution. <laughs> and we kept saying, no, 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 no. You know, um, fire is a technology, you know, weaving is a technology, you know, all of these things. And, and so we spent the first, you know, three weeks of the course arguing about that. Um, and, so he 
I mean, he didn't like us very much, um, and and you know, and he assigned he assigned the last unicorn, and I wrote this paper about it, which basically, you know, basically the point is that the magic is magic isn't a matter of transformation; it's a matter of recognition, right? You know, you're saying um, uh, a raven is like a writing desk, not to turn one into the other, but but because you've already recognized that one is like the other, so you're making that visible to other people. Um, and um, and and the professor, you know, gave me a very good grade and said he had never read, you know, a better paper about a mediocre book. And I, mm. <laughs> I wanted, I know, I was like, oh, how dare mm. you? You know, you're dissing one of my favorite books. You don't get to do that. So, um, but, you know, then years later, I dug out, dug out the essay to uh, when, uh, when um, we were looking for material for Nearsof, you know, I dusted it off and sort of handed it to David Hartwell and said, hey, would this do? And he's like, yeah. So, so they reprinted it or printed it for the first time. Um, and um, yeah, I, it's a, it, that's a, that's a beautiful book and I really love it. Yeah. Well, I am just, it looks like a stab through the heart here in that right there. Uh the, the professor's uh, comment to you, like, wow, that is yeah. not cool, man. No, it wasn't. It was always, you know, and I also wanted to say, if you don't like this book, why did you assign it to us? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you put it on the syllabus, okay? So, yeah, yeah. It was, um, uh, um, there, was a, there was a party in the department and, you know, a bunch of us went and, and his his wife was there and his wife told me, oh, you know, most of the time he complains about the fact that he can't get anybody to talk. And he said, in that class, all he has to do is walk into the room and say technology and then hide under the desk <laughs> while people throw things at each other. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it was it was an exciting experience for all of us. Yeah, well. Um, all right, so we're pretty much out of time. Do you have um, like what are you up to now? Do you have anything you're working on or projects you want to let people know about? Oh, I always have things I'm working on. So um, I have two stories coming out in Best of the Year anthologies, which is exciting. Um, my story Sparrows, which was in Asimov's, is being reprinted in Year's Best. American science fiction and fantasy and my story, the long view is being reprinted in Paula Garand's year's best fantasy number two. Uh, and then and I have a story forthcoming in light speed. And in terms of ongoing projects, I mean, I'm always working on stuff. I'm struggling with a fantasy trilogy right now, which, you know, I don't know if it will ever get done. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm pick, pecking away at it. So we'll see. You're, you're on the first book of the trilogy or? I, well, I kind of have a draft of the whole thing. First, it was going to be one book and then it was going to be two. And then, and then somebody read it and said, no, it needs to be three. So I'm, and it's actually sort of like three novellas. I mean, the books are short. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of halfway through the second in this in this iteration of it. I have a I have a writing group um, which is helpful because they can tell me if I'm still on track. So I've been showing it to them, um, but it's gonna you know it's gonna take me a while to finish it. And I already, of course, have revisions to make based on their feedback. So yeah, that's process. really 
That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, definitely a fantasy trilogy. If you're if you want to become a, a big best-selling author, a fantasy trilogy is uh, more likely to to do that than a short story collection. Well, I'm not sure this one would. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty bleak, <laughs> but we'll see. Stranger things have happened, I suppose. Yeah, well, I don't know. That actually a bleak. Uh, Fantasy trilogy composed of short books sounds almost like my ideal uh, reading experience. So uh, cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, 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 I'm eager for it anyway. Good, thank you. Good to know that there's someone out there, out there who is. <laughs> um. All right, great. So, any uh, any other final thoughts or anything? Not that I can think of. Just you know, thanks for talking to me. It's been fun and. Uh, yeah, and I and congratulations again on your on your marriage and uh, and congrats on the long long running Geeks Guide to the Galaxy because this has been going for a while. Uh, yeah, thirteen years. So yeah, yeah, quite a while. Yeah, very impressive. Very impressive. So oh. well, well, thank you so much, and it's it's been so great speaking to you, Susan. We've been again speaking with Susan Powick about her books, The Fate of Mice, and All Worlds Are Real. So thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Susan Palwick for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it... Tell no one. Thank you for listening.